17. We've been making our way through this book, and we've reached chapter 17, and it's the story of David and Goliath, and, and you know how it goes. But uh, let's just take a quick review anyhow, anyhow and kind of get this thing back in mind for ourselves. Verses 1, 2, and 3 uh, of chapter 17 tell us that these old enemies are at one another again. Now, they've been doing this for some time now, ever since the time of the book of Judges. So about 300 years, the Philistines and the Israelites have been going at one another. Let me show you a picture uh, of what's been happening in the book of Samuel. The book of Samuel actually uh, records three battles. And the first battle occurs at the top, and you can see those red arrows making their way there. That was the battle where the Ark of the Covenant was taken back by the Philistines into their own homeland, and the Philistines were all along the coast. So the Philistines covered the coastal region, and then in what's called that center mountain region, that's where the Israelites lived. Uh, the second story that was told in, in uh, Samuel about the Philistines and their struggle with, with uh, Israel is in that center section, and that's where Samuel himself led the armies against the Philistines and defeated them. And now it's 20 years later, and the Philistines are lining themselves up again, and this time they're coming in the southern section, and they're heading toward Judah. Before I take you to the next map, I just want you to notice two things about this map, because it's going to be important to the story. The first thing to notice is that there's the Mediterranean Sea there, and the Philistines were originally known as one of the sea peoples. So make a note of that, a mental note. That's going to be important uh, to some of the things that we talk about in just a second. And, and then if these are the sea peoples, the other thing I want you to notice is that they, they come from the West. Uh, that's going to be a significant point for us just a little bit later on. So notice those two things about them. Their five key cities are listed. By the way, it was the Philistines that gave the name to the land of Palestine. Palestine is named for the Philistines. Isn't that interesting? Now the second picture that I want to show you here is where the battle actually took place. This is a, a modern photo of uh, the battle that, uh, that took place in the Valley of Elah. Uh, those uh, uh, covered buildings down at the front weren't there when uh, you know David uh, fought uh, Goliath and so they didn't have those buildings there at that time. But you can see over at Ephesh Demim, that's where the Philistines were, were uh, camped. Soko to the south uh, and a little bit to the uh, east, and then Saul was camped on the other side, and the creek where David would have gotten his five stones. Verses 1, 2, and 3 talk about these uh, two countries lining up against one another. Now, in chapter 17, verses 4 through 11, introduce us to the, one of the major characters of the book, and I'll show you this next picture here. He's the, the man Goliath. Uh, the Philistines have surfaced this champion. He's a big guy, and he's scary. In fact, one man said he's not only built like a Sherman tank, he was equipped like one. And, and you begin to just see a little bit. Uh, now, they, the Philistines had these distinctive feather-type helmets, so this is a real kind of portrait of the, of the helmets that they would have worn at that at that time. The frontal armor was probably a little different. It was more of a chain link. It, David, the, the passage says it looked more like scales than like armor. But you get something of, a, of the picture of the size of this man. Now, one of the things that I want to tell you about Goliath, sometimes when we think of big people, we think, you know, that they're lumbersome and they're cumbersome and maybe not always highly intelligent. Uh, sometimes, not always, sometimes. 
In the case of Goliath, I don't want you to think that. Goliath was probably more like a basketball star. I mean, he was probably quick and subtle, and he was just really intelligent. He was sharp. In fact, he was very religious, and he understood an issue, and we're going to surface that issue in the course of our story that often is missed. So Goliath is a, is a major adversary. The other thing you should know about Goliath is that the armies that came together at this period of time were basically volunteer armies. And so they would gather people that typically lived on farms, uh, typically tilled the, the soil, and they would bring their sticks and their clubs. And men like Goliath were professional warriors. They were trained. They did this for a living. They were mercenaries. And so when somebody like Goliath stood out there, typically the other armies, unless they had some professionals that were of this caliber, they didn't have anybody to field against someone like Goliath. So this is pretty true to, to the story. That's verses 4 through 11. Now, verse uh, 12 through 29, and I apologize for this next picture. I couldn't get a real good picture of David here. But I want to give you some idea. David arrives on the battlefield. Now, he's bringing supplies from home for his brothers, who typically are shepherds and keepers of the soil and the like, and so they were supplied from home. David brings supplies just about the time Goliath marches out and begins to issue this challenge. Remember, he, Goliath comes out every day, twice a day. This has gone on for nearly 40 days, something like about six weeks, taunting the army of Israel. And David arrives at just the time in the morning when, Eli when Goliath marches out and begins to utter his taunt. Now, uh, the couple of things that you should notice about uh, this particular part of the story, and we'll come to that in just a second, is that uh, when the armies hear this, Basically, they're, they're uh, stuck, they're stymied, they have no champion uh, to uh, march out against Goliath. And so the way King Saul was trying to get somebody to get out there to do this was to offer them a reward. I'll give you my daughter, I'll give you some money, and I'll let your uh, family you know, live tax-free from here on out. And so it was sort of an economic uh, kind of an offer, uh, talk of reward. Now David is going to grab a hold of that. He, he's going to grab a hold of that, and we'll see why in just a second. And the other key thing about David arriving here is David's older brother, as we heard in the song, David's older brother puts him down. David's older brother uh, doesn't like the fact that David has been anointed, and in fact he's been cho chosen over him and all the other brothers. You remember the story of how he's the smallest and the youngest and brought from the field. He's chosen. Well, David's older brother seems to reflect still just a little bit of bitterness, and he doesn't like it that David's there, so his older brother Eliab is going to reject David. Now verses uh, 30 through 51, uh, David is going to convince Saul, and we'll see the next picture here, David is going to convince Saul to allow him to go down and do battle with Goliath. Now make a mental note, in order to convince King Saul, David, this little shepherd boy, says, you know, I've gotten pretty good with my sling out here protecting my father's sheep. In fact, I can remember a time when there was a bear, make note of the bear, and I can remember a time when there was a lion that attacked, and I was able to beat the bear and the lion. Make a mental note of those two things, would you? He convinces Saul that he can go in and do battle. He does do battle. He kills Goliath. He decapitates Goliath with Goliath's own sword. There's also, I think, a reason for that. 
Then verses 52 through 54 of the chapter, Israel wins the victory and David becomes a hero and actually he is recruited into Saul's professional army and he becomes a professional warrior like Goliath was, only now fighting on Saul's side. Well, reviewing that story, you'll forgive the pun if I tell you it's the classic David and Goliath story. One writer put it this way, it's the inspiration for fictional heroes from Jack and the Beanstalk to Rocky. The myth of the underdog, the little guy who overcomes powerful obstacles is woven into the very fabric of American culture. Think of the last 10 Hollywood movies that you've seen or maybe the last 10 books that you've read. Like I say, you know the story. But there are some indications when we look closer at this particular text, there's some indications that something deeper is going on than the little guy taking on the big guy. And I want us to try to explore those. Uh, three indications, for example. David's name. Did you know that David's name is mentioned more times in the Old Testament than any other person? One thousand times David's name occurs in the Old Testament. That's more than Moses. It's more than Jacob, it's more than Abraham, it's more than any of the prophets. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear something like that, I, it makes me wonder, why is that? Why is David's name mentioned so many times in the Old Testament? Why is it so important? A second fact that you should probably know that indicates there's something deeper going on here is that the Old Testament devotes more space to David's story than to any other person in the Old Testament. More than half of 1 Samuel, all of 2 Samuel, spills over even into 1 Kings. Not only of that, it's repeated in the abridged version. I guess that's for people that didn't have time to read the other story. They'd go by 1 Chronicles and verses chapter 11 through 29. Altogether, there are 61 chapters in the Old Testament devoted to the story of David. Now, that's not even to mention the number of psalms that David wrote. And so one observer says, David is unique among all the biblical characters that we have. He's unique by virtue of the fact that he's so fully known to us, not only from the outside, from people that wrote about him, but from the inside, from the books that he wrote. And, and so that makes me wonder, why is that? Why does the Old Testament devote so much time to this person, David. It gives so much detail. And then the third and last thing I'll mention here it has to do with the chapter itself. In David's long story, this chapter is the longest chapter. Now, the battle itself couldn't have taken longer than, I don't know, half an hour? How long does it take to you know, swing this thing around and hurl a few taunts and smack somebody in the head and knock him down? Hour max. So why is this particular chapter so long? Why are there 58 verses in this chapter devoted to this battle of David and Goliath? So what makes David's name so important? Why is his life so important to the biblical account? And why is this brief battle given in such detail? I think there's hints here that we're supposed to stop and park and look a little deeper at this story and see if we can figure out what is going on in David and Goliath's encounter. 
And so I want to propose to you today that by looking at the three major players, David and Saul and Goliath, uh, that we're going to discover that biblically speaking, well, how can I say it? David is actually bigger than David. What I mean by that is David's battle with Goliath is a tip-off to something that's, that, that's so much fuller than just this little encounter. Can I put it that way? between David and Goliath that we often hear even in Sunday school. And I, I want to see if we can discover what some of that bigness, biggerness, is that a word? It's not a word, means. So let's look first of all at Saul mentioned in verse 2 of chapter 17. Saul. Saul. The name itself is important. Saul is the Hebrew word translates asked for. That's what it literally means. His name means asked for. And immediately calls us to think of chapter 8, verse 5, where it says that the Israelites were envious of all the other nations. They were the only nation that didn't have a king. They were the only nation that wasn't organized in the form of a monarchy. And so they had sold for a king. They had asked for a king. And I think that's a tip-off, an indication that we've got a problem here. And I want to show you three verses to try to get at the foundation, the ground, for why I'm saying that's a problem. Why is it a problem that the Israelites were asking for a king like all the other nations? Let's start in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28. And I've got a passage here I want to show to you this morning. It's kind of a long passage. Uh, and I'm just going to highlight several things from that passage. It goes like this. It's a, it's a strange passage, by the way. It looks almost like a self-serving passage for Israel. But God's covenant with this Old Testament nation was unique in these ways. Look what he says. God says through Moses, If you follow all the commands of the Lord, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. Now, that promise was never given to any other country. No other nation. It was only ever given to Israel. Now, there were some people at the founding of our country that took that promise and said it applied to the United States, but so far as I can tell, that's not the case. There's only ever been one country in the history of the planet that had this, let's call it a covenantal promise, a promise based on the Abrahamic covenant of the Old Testament, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But God said, if you'll obey me, I'll perform a miracle. I will make you like a nation this world has never seen. And then he begins to explain the nature of that miracle. Look at verse 3. He says, you will be blessed. That's the summary. If you'll just obey me, you're going to be blessed. And, and look, you'll be blessed in the city. You'll be blessed in the country. doesn't matter whether you live in Chicago or in the outreaches. The fruit, of your, the fruit of your womb will be blessed. The crops of your land, the young of your livestock will be blessed. That's one of the reasons in the Old Testament why, why when families were barren, they considered it a problem because God had promised that they wouldn't be in this supernaturally formed nation. The calves of your herds, the lambs, the flocks. Verse 5, your basket, your kneading trough will be blessed. You'll be blessed when you come in. You'll be blessed when you go out. Now here's the third part of the promise. The Lord will grant that 
the Goliaths, the enemies who rise up against you, will be defeated. Hmm. Now, isn't that interesting? And then the fourth part of the promise, all the peoples on earth will see that you're called by the name of the Lord. Now, now here's the deal. God has always been attempting to surface a visual aid, a model home, uh, a demonstration plot to show what life should be like lived under his gracious reign. And if the world could see the kind of life that people should live if he was their king, well, they would just want that. And so Israel was designed to be this alternative lifestyle. It was designed to be a nation that lived in such a way that they would call down God's blessings and all the other nations would see that and say, oh, hey, that's the God we want to serve. That just makes sense. Look, this is the kind of rule we want to have from the God that's over us. So when Israel is asking to become a nation like the other nations, do you see what's wrong? They were never intended to be a nation like the other nations. Now, in the New Testament, in the covenant under which we live, the expansion of this Old Testament covenant, I must tell you that our covenant is transnational. The same promise applies, but not to us in a national entity. What it means is that the church of Jesus Christ in Africa, in Asia, in North America, wherever it happens to be, we're to live under God's redemptive rule in such a way that when the world looks, they say, I can't explain what's going on in that group or in that person's life or in that Christian family, but wow, I would really like to have what they have. That's the way God has always designed it to be for his people to live. Israel isn't living this way, and that's why this is a problem in this text, and that's why this text is so important for us to consider. So by asking for this uh, to be a nation like the other nations, well, it was a step down. Now, the second verse I want you to look at is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Uh, and it tells us something about the nature of the natural man, and Saul is going to be an example of that. First, I said 2 Corinthians, I meant 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, says the man without the Spirit does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. So the passage I just shared with you in Deuteronomy 20, 28, that passage is absolute foolishness. To the natural man. They look at that, they scratch their head, they said, Jim, I've heard you explain it, and I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. That's the natural man. They don't understand the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness to him. He can't understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Now, that's the kind of king Saul was. Saul, in the Old Testament, was pictured as a king who kept losing the spirit in his life. Now, that doesn't mean you can lose your salvation. It's just the Old Testament way of picturing the natural man that if we don't have the spirit in our lives, we don't get it. And Saul never got it. Uh, we've been telling this story now for several weeks, several of us as uh, speakers. And one of the things we saw in chapter 13 is that Saul never got the importance of God's word. Uh, he didn't take God's word seriously. Samuel would tell him to do something. 
Saul would do it until he ran into a crisis, and then he would stop doing it, and he would do things his own way. So he obeyed God and his word when it served his purposes. But he didn't really trust in that word. That's a characteristic of the natural man. I will believe the Bible as long as it works for me. But if it leads me into a problem, or if I can't wait for God to show himself, well then, I don't get it, I don't want it, I'll find the next piece of advice. That's the mark of a natural man. Uh, the second thing that we saw from King Saul was that he was focused on himself, on himself, and on building a memorial to himself. We saw that in chapter 15, verse 12. That, that's where most natural people live. It's just a natural, ordinary thing. Uh, I will build my life. I will leave my legacy. I will make my mark on this planet. No reference to God in particular. And even when we do reference God in that context, I'll use God to make my mark. It's kind of the way the natural man thinks. That's the way Saul thought. Saul also practiced a surface kind of worship. Well, you know, if I'm going to be a ruler, people will expect to see me in church on Sunday morning. And not only that, they'll expect that, you know, every now and then somebody will call on me to pray. I mean, I am a ruler after all. And so his, his worship became just sort of a surface, superficial thing. As a king, this is what made him a bad king. He didn't get it. Now some of you are probably thinking, Jim, uh, you've now been several minutes into the sermon here and you haven't mentioned C.S. Lewis yet. When are you going to get to C.S. Lewis? This is the place. He's one of my favorite writers and authors, you know. You see, I, I think Saul illustrates a very important point that is established in the Old Testament. You see, the problem of human rebellion is not that you and I want to be kings or rulers or good at our job. In fact, the Old Testament tells us in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, that we were originally created to be kings. God said, fill the earth and subdue it. That is, we're to manage this planet. And not only that, he says, fill the earth and subdue it, but I want you to rule over ever, every living thing. We were designed to be kings and queens and rulers of the planet. So the problem is not that we're uh, trying to be too kingly or too much of a rule. The problem is we don't put our kingship under God's rule. We're not stewards under him. So, lion, witch, and wardrobe. You remember the four major characters there, the little children, Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy. And at one point in the story, they go through this wardrobe and they enter the land of Narnia and they meet this white witch, the queen, who's wrestled the kingdom from them. And she doesn't want them to succeed because if they succeed, they're going to become royalty and she's going to lose her throne. White witch, think Goliath. Kings, think Saul and the Israelites. And by the way, at the end of the lion, witch, and wardrobe, Peter becomes King Peter, the magnificent. Susan becomes Queen Susan, the gentle. Edmund becomes King Edmund the Just, and Lucy becomes Queen Lucy the Valiant. The essence of human rebellion, this is what I'm trying to say, the essence of human rebellion is not that we want to be kings or queens or rulers or good at what we do or masterful student, students or uh, uh, 
stewards over the things that God has given. That's not the essence of rebellion. God designed us to be kings and queens and rulers. The problem with us, the essence of our rebellion, is that we don't want to be kings and queens and rulers under God. That's the problem. And so, like Saul, we all tend to listen to his word only when it serves our own ends. And like Saul, we all tend to be busy building memorials to ourselves rather than to God. And like Saul, we all incline to engage in religious practices for outward display that others can see. One of the reasons why I find it so difficult to fault Saul when I read his story in the Old Testament is because, I'll just be honest with you, there's so much of me in him. He's Adam. He's the natural man. He's me in my fallen nature. I see myself in Saul, and I can't figure out what's wrong. I can't figure out why God rejected him. I don't get it. The issue, however, is that God's kingdom, it's a step down to be like the other kingdoms. And to be a king like Saul was trying to be is a step down from the kind of king God has called us to be. And that brings me to the third reason why having a king like the other, king, the other nations doesn't work in the kingdom of God. And this is Goliath. Um, the nature of the enemy that we fight. Revelation chapter 13. Dare I pull out the book of Revelation, this scary book in the last part of the Bible. Let me read this passage through with you. Describing the strange beast that surfaces halfway through the book of Revelation. John says, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. Uh, what did I tell you to think about when I told you to think about the Philistines? What were they known as? One of the sea peoples. He had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on his horns, and each of the heads had a blasphemous name. As we're about to see, Goliath is going to be the blasphemer par excellence. He's just filled with blasphemy. He knew what he was about. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but he had a feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. Where have you heard of a bear and a lion in the Goliath story? David says, I killed both of those with my sling. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority, and one of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound in it. Well, now, isn't that interesting? That's exactly what's going to happen to Goliath. But the fatal wound had been healed, and the whole world was astonished and followed the beast, and men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against Goliath? You get the point? Now let me show you a picture. here. This is one artist's conception of this thing that's happening in Revelation. It's just a conception. You've got the sea. You've got this body of a leopard. You've got the feet of a bear. You've got the mouth of a lion. You've got all the heads, and you've got all the horns, and you've got all the crowns. This is, this is kind of one picture. But I'm showing you this passage and this picture to make a point. The sea beast is a composite of all of Christ's enemies throughout history. When you see the sea beast, I think you should think of Pharaoh in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus. Somebody who was against the people of God. Some of our ladies have been studying the book of Esther. When you see the this, this sea beast, you should think of Haman 
in the book of Esther who tried to destroy the people of God. When you see the sea beast, you think of King Herod who tried to destroy all the little babies, all the children when Jesus was born. When you see the sea beast, you should think of Nero who, who uh, put both Peter and Paul to death in the first century church. When you see the sea beast, you should think of any ruler, any authority, any power throughout history that is attempt to squelch the mission of Christ. That's the sea beast. Now, the sea beast will appear in a final form, I believe, at the end of history. But in Goliath, we already have a picture of someone who's standing strong against the things of God, attacking the very heart of the faith of the people of God. And that brings me now next to the third character here, Goliath and his challenge. And I'm going to just quickly bang through several verses to show you the essence of what Goliath is doing here. It's not just a little kid against a big giant in the middle of a warfare. Goliath knew exactly what he was doing. And you see this in his first statement. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy. Now that's the key word. Uh, we're going to look at a covenant in just a second. I will bless you who bless me. Uh, I, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Goliath stood up, knowing exactly what Israel believed, knowing what the Philistines believed, knowing that they've had a 200, 250, 300-year war. Goliath stood up and says, I defy all you stand for. I defy your faith. I defy your Armies, I defy your God. Now, uh, the next quote comes from verse 25. The people of Israel pick up on this. They know what's going on. And so as the men are explaining to David, who appears in the scene, they say to him, do you see this man who keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. There's our key word again. Now, verse 26 is David's response he says, uh, what will be done for the man who removes this disgrace from Israel? Now, that's a translation. The translation is from the literal word defy. What will be done for the man who removes this defiance from the face of Israel? Is literally what it says there. And then the next verse. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of God? Now, Uncircumcision, uh, circumcision, uncircumcision in the Old Testament is not a way of being lewd or crude. It was a sign of the Old Testament covenant. If you were uncircumcised, you didn't belong to the faith. The household is sort of like baptism in the New Testament. It was the mark of faith. If you were circumcised, you had the mark of faith. This Philistine, David sees, as somebody who doesn't believe. He doesn't have the mark of faith. This brings us to the next verse expert. He has defied the armies of the living God, David says, and then the last reference in this chapter, I come against you, David says, in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Do you get the point? The point is this man stood up with full awareness of what he's doing. He's challenging everything, the very root, the very bedrock, the very heart of what Israel stood for, and he says, I defy it all. I'm against it. I despise it. I want to destroy it. I want to make you my slave. I'll make you a Philistine rather than a believer in Israel's God. 
Now, the last phrase that I'll show you here is what's known as the Abrahamic Covenant. This is why it was wrong for Israel to try to be a nation like the other nations. This was God's promise. And Israel was failing to believe God's promise in this chapter. The Lord had said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, whoever defies you, whoever tackles your faith, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Now that last phrase, Paul says, that's the Old, Old Testament, John 3.16. If people would simply believe in the covenant blessing of God and the promises that he offered, they would receive the blessing. It wasn't that Israel was so special that everybody else was excluded. It's that they were held up as special so that everybody else could be invited. And if you cursed that invitation, you would be cursed. And if you accepted that invitation, you would be accepted. That's the Abrahamic covenant, and that's what Goliath despised. That's what he rejected. So my point is that trying to be a nation like the other nations and trying to have a king like the other kings had led Israel to the brink of disaster. And chapter 17, verse 8, tells us that Goliath knew this. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, verse 8 says, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the slaves of Saul, the natural man? Choose a man, a natural man, and have him come down to me. And if he's able to fight and kill me, then we'll become your servants. In other words, this is a battle for whose faith was going to win. It came down to that. And so David appears on the scene. And it's only David that gets it. Nobody else seems to get it. Now all of a sudden, David appears and David gets it. And we see that from two snapshots. Let's just look at verses 25 and 26. David hears as he arrives a conversation that's going on about uh, this uh, Philistine that's attacking. Verse 25, when the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He keeps coming out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. Isn't that the way the natural man thinks? Religion is only a way of making profit. It's only a way of getting wealthy. It's just a way of making a buck. And you know what? If you just go down and take him, you can, you can become rich too, and you won't even have to pay taxes. You become a minister, and you don't even have to pay taxes, is what he's saying here. David looks in verse 26. David asks the men standing near him. Now, I think you should read this ironically. Here's the literal Hebrew translation. What? What? What are you talking about? You're talking about rewards at a time like this? What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace? What? You're thinking in terms of taxes and marriages and prestige? That's not the point. David gets to the point. Who does this uncircumcised Philistine think he is that's defying the armies of the living God? Only David gets it. And that's why he becomes a hero. Now, the next little vignette here in verses 46 and 47 that shows us an insight into why David is so special in this passage. Verse 46, David says, This day the Lord will hand you, Goliath, over to me. Now, why could he say that? Certainly not because of the weapons he wielded. 
He could say that because of the promise in Deuteronomy that we looked at earlier, that if you obey me, I will make sure your enemies are defeated. And he could say that because of Genesis chapter 12, I will curse those who curse you. David believed God. I mean, he really believed God. I mean, really. He trusted him to his depth and to the core. And so he walked into this battle and he challenges this challenger. He says, who do you think you are? Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. Now, I don't like that warfare battle any more than you do, but keep in mind what is at stake. This is a battle of faith. It's a destruction of the very thing that God stood for, that David is standing up for. Now, David says, I want to do this for two reasons. I want to do it, number one, that the whole earth the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And by the way, that's why we're reading this story today. David did it, and now you and I are reading this story, and we get it. And we see, as the whole world, everywhere this story goes, the whole world now gets it, the issue of faith. And oh, by the way, verse 47, and all those gathered there at that historical point in time, you don't get it either, David says, and I want you to get it too. Do you get it? He says, do you get it? So David, this next quote is a very important quote. Can we show this? Contrary to the typical David and Goliath mythology of the little guy versus the big guy, this story is not teaching it. Contrary to that story, that victory does not come through some kind of hidden inner courage that I may have. It doesn't come through my crafty wiles or faith in some power that I have inside in spite of the odds that I'm facing. Victory does not come from earthly weapons at all. That's why he won't accept King Saul's armor in the story, and that's why he uses the little sling in the story. The victory doesn't come from human weapons. Victory comes from the Lord and only from the Lord and only when we believe in him. David gets the point. Now, real quick, let me draw some comparisons as we pull this thing to a close here. There are three players in this battle of faith, and I want you to see how they're presented to us in Scripture. There's Saul, the man without the spirit. There's Goliath, the superhuman opponent of God. And there's David, God's anointed. In the Old Testament, to be anointed meant that you were Mashiach. Messiah, that's the word from anointing. In the New Testament, the word is Christ, Christos, Christ, anointed. Jesus is God's Christ, his anointed. He's God's Messiah, God's anointed. And David is a picture of that. That's what I say when I say David is bigger than David. David points us to Christ, but so do the other figures. So Saul, the man without the spirit, is introduced as a donkey wrangler. All we like sheep have gone astray, the Old Testament says, but you know what? Donkeys stray too. And the first time we meet uh, Saul, he's chasing down donkeys. And that's exactly where Israel was at this time in their history. They were straying. They were wandering. They weren't trying to be the kind of people God wanted them to be. Second, uh, Saul, the man without the spirit, was chosen by the people. He was a character who didn't believe and therefore he was ineffective. Uh, the brother's response to Saul, however, and this is the ancient Israelite response, corresponds to the modern Israelite response, and many times, in many respects, they were aligned with the natural man, and his weapons were purely human. The middle column, Goliath, the superhuman opponent of God, he's known as an adversary in the sense that the Arabs call us Satan, meaning 
adversary. We are their opponents. Satan. They hate the Satan. That's the sense that the adversary is used here. He was chosen by the enemy. He's a defiant one. He was feared by the brethren. He's a diabolical being. I hope you see that. But David is the shepherd king who comes from the father, totally dependent on God. He's scorned by his brethren. The New Testament says he came into his own and his own received him not. And he fought with foolish weapons. He defeated Satan and Goliath and the natural man on the cross of all places. Through the foolishness of the cross, the New Testament says, of all things. How dumb can you be? In fact, the world has always thought that. There's a graffiti that used to be drawn in walls in Rome in the first and second century of a man who was crucified on the cross and had all these worshippers standing down below him and he had the head of a donkey. Idiot. Only a, they, You're serving a donkey who died on a cross. Do you get the idea? Uh, the foolishness of the cross. Well, two, two quick things here and then we'll wrap this up. Two other things to notice. Notice that David defeated Goliath with his own sword. He, he knocked him down with the, the stone to the head, but then he walked over and finished the job with Goliath's own sword. So Satan put Jesus to death on the cross through the hands of wicked men, the New Testament says. And it's through the cross, the very weapon of wicked men, that Satan was defeated. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that and then the other thing, and this is the most important point, God's people enjoy the fruit of David's victory. And here's a quote I want you just to really nail. We don't have to be like the Israelites under Saul. We don't have to be like the natural man that is stymied in life. But brothers and sisters, we're not David. You're not David. I'm not David. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is not, Jim, you should become David. Jesus is David. Jesus is David. That's the point of the story. Our victory over the giants in our lives are grounded in his victory. He did it. He showed us how. We should do our best to follow his example, but we should also find our security in his victory, not in our victory. It's his victory. I, I love, some of you know I've said this in some of our ABS, I love that statement at the baptism of Jesus, this is my son whom I love. He is well received of me. That was the only person on this planet that God has ever made that statement about. My son, well received, whom I love. And it's only as I find my position in him, it's only as I find myself in him, as long as I put my faith in Him, as long as I connect with Him, can I experience the blessing and the victory and the glory of God? The story of David and Goliath is about my faith in Him, in David. And so, two possible responses, and with this we'll close. There's the response of proud rejection of Eliab, one of David's own kinsmen. We don't need you, David. We can get along with very well without you, David. We can be saved by our own culture, by our own religion, by our own efforts, by all the things we've learned to trust in, David. We don't need you, David. Go home. Go home, David. Away with him. Crucify him. We have no king 
but Caesar. That's one possible response. Thousands of people are making that response today. I hope that's not your response to the story of David. But there's another possible response. We see it in chapter 18, just real quickly. Verse 1. After David had finished taking, uh, talking with Saul, Jonathan, Saul's son, became one in spirit with David, and he loved him. That's the call. Become one in spirit with David and love him. Now look at verse 3. And Jonathan made a covenant, agreement, commitment of loyalty. He joined him. David, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. And Jonathan took off his royal robe that he was wearing and he gave it to David. And along with his tunic, royal tunic, along with his sword, his royal sword, his bow, and his belt. And he says, it's not about my kingship anymore. It's not about me being Lord of my own life anymore. It's not about me being somebody anymore. It's not about me being special anymore. It's about me belonging to you. And I give it all to you, knowing that he will give it back in the right way, in the right balance, in the right mix. That's a statement of faith. I think that's what the story of David and Goliath is ultimately about. Would you join me in a word of prayer this morning? Lord, uh, what a powerful message uh, you have given to us through this, this story of David and Goliath that we learned as children. But now, Lord, we want to learn it in a deeper way. We want to learn not to reject you like uh, David's own brothers, uh, Eliab and others did. We want to be like Jonathan. We want to step up we want to put our lives and our talent in your hands. And we want you to make us the kind of kings we were designed to be as we submit our earthly kingship to you. In Jesus' name.